the Living 1982 podcast. Were you into the punk scene in the very early 80s or someone who discovered the genre along the way? Well, we're doing some deep diving into the Seattle punk scene and sharing the story behind a band that was very short-lived but made a lasting impact with members going on to being in some of the biggest bands in the world. Their debut album was never released back in the day but is finally out now. This is the story of the living. And a part Our of it. special guest today is Chris Crass, the hey. instigator of the living. Yeah. Uh, right off the bat, I want to say that I'm not trying to be super cool with the shades. I just, I got, I went to the doctor today and I got my eyes kind of messed up. So that's uh -huh. why I'm, and I think I look cool too, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, uh, I'm downstairs. Otherwise, I put on some shades too. Take these off or put them up to the. Uh, I mean, this one's kind of fuzzy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can do that kind of thing. We can do. We can do that. But you know, hey, it's good. Okay, so back to these. Just little um, thing. Yeah, I mean, so, I wanna, go ahead. There's obviously a lot of things for us to talk about. There is. Um, I met you probably at your first, was, was your first show with the radios? Yeah, it was at the, um, monastery and then it became the sanctuary. Oh, sure, sure, sure. It was my first show and, uh, it might've been at that show you were at. I know El Duce was at that show and you can hear him in the background. <laughs> <laughs> but then there was another show at the IOGT Hall. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, and that was with the Fish Sticks, Rob Morgan's man. Yeah, yeah, we did find we did find the the poster for that. But then the uh, the the monastery one um, was you know an early show for the radios, which uh, Kim from the Fastbacks was also in. And yeah, she was with me in my first band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was February of '79. But you weren't the first drummer in the radios, were you? No, uh, -uh. no, maybe Lee Lumsden remember was the drummer before that, right? Was it, huh? was it Lee Lumsden the drummer in the uh, in the radios before? I'm just, just you know, I think remember. it might have been, <clears throat> yeah, it yeah, yeah. Been Lee. yeah, yeah, because there's, I think, maybe a photo of the first radios show from later in 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 '78. Also at the IOGT Hall, but I think it was it was with my band, the Cheaters, and uh, and and the the radios. And there's some 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 good pictures from that one. Okay, so so you're playing in the radios with our buddy Alan, and uh, was was John Blattenbauer, Johnny Vinyl, was he in the radios at that point? He, he it was first. Um, Jeff oh, was Dave Fisher, Fisher on organ. was uh, um, right. So we were keyboards, bass, Kim on bass, Alan fronting the band, singing, playing guitar, and me playing drums. And then I don't know why Dave Fisher left, why that didn't work out, but then we got Johnny Vinyl, and he played guitar, so we had two guitars then. Mm -hmm. Right, right, and that's, uh, that's the lineup that played like yeah. at Washington Hall, I believe, right? Maybe, yeah. You know, whenever that was. Uh, so... Okay, so the the radios kind of everybody just kind of fizzled out. Maybe Alan changed his mind, whatever. And how did you meet up with Duff and Andy? Well, this is interesting. In Andy's podcast, 
He said, I just showed up one day at Duff's. And I'm sorry, here's the deal. Duff's older brother, Matt McKagan, is my age. We're like three years older than Duff. And in elementary school, I could walk to elementary school from my house. And Duff's house was about four blocks away. So after school, Matt and I would come down from elementary school and play at Matt's house. And, and um, Duff was there. He was kind of like the tag long because he was younger. So I really knew Duff from a very early age, but we didn't, then, then you know, we grew apart because I went to Eckstein and, you know, we went, he was still in, in grade school. And so we grew apart and then we, we re-met um, maybe, you know, in, in high school, in, in my senior year, I think, junior, senior year of high school. And, and I'm not really sure how we met, we re-met, um, I might have just gone and visited Matt for some reason. I don't know, but uh, but then but then yeah, I did just sort of show up and we started we started uh, you know well actually Duff and I and Garth Brandenburg played in a band while I was still in high school and it was with a singer named Mark Twight and uh, and it, we high school girls narrow-minded girls I remember that was one of the songs. Um, but Duff played bass in that, and I played drums in that band. And so really that was me and Duff's first band. And then the veins, you know, happened. I'm, I think it happened before I did my rockabilly thing. But, you know, I was in this band with Blackie called the Crocodiles. And Duff even joined in on that band for a get you gigs. Um, so Duff, Duff and I played in a few bands, like at least three bands together before we started you know, before we got to the living, to the point of the living. Mm -hmm. and, and I can tell you about that, you know, whenever. But so, but, uh, so the Veins is also an, an interesting band because it was you and both, both you and Duff were in that band. And that was, you know, you had original tunes and, you know, we're, we're, a, you know, kick-ass punk band. Yeah. I kind of thought that in some ways we were sort of a prototypical teenage punk band, um, you know, Trying to be trying to be fast, play like the Ramones, but we we're on that cusp of hardcore too. So, because there was hardcore was coming up, so so we were trying to play a little faster than the Ramones maybe on some of the songs. But for sure, we we uh we just we were, we were goofy kids, you know. But it's amazing how I think good we got in the short amount of time that we played together. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, the Bane single is killer. Great. Yeah. You, you know, you had something to do with the single. It's on no threes. And I think the third single on no threes. So it's number four because yeah, number four. no threes. There's, there would be no threes in the catalog. Is that right? Oh, yeah, for sure. There would, there would, there would, there'll be no threes in the uh, catalog numbers there. You, you remember that, right? Of course. Okay. Yeah. 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 I just, I thought that was funny. And, and then you, um, and then, uh, well, that vein single has been it's been bootlegged a lot and it ended up on these killed by death punk comps mm -hmm, for sure you know the killed by death comps yeah, yeah for sure yeah those are great and three of the songs ended up on three different volumes on killed by so death they, yeah 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 the, the no and so that you know, that really pissed me off row three no three's record label has a pretty good history with the uh, killed by death uh comps i think accident 
accident. Yeah. One cheaters, the cheaters, uh, Ice Man is on one. Mm -hmm. The veins, silly killers. They even took the silly killers cover for one of the killed by death comps. Uh, was that the one with the weird looking yeah, yeah, wrestler? Yeah, 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 they, yeah. They took that and used that as the cover <laughs> for one of the. Yeah, that's that's great. So you know, so 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 that's that's pretty cool. If you I feel uh, sort of honored to be uh, bootlegged as often as you know, it kind of pissed me off. I'm like, God damn it, they're bootlegging my stuff. I have to buy my own copies of this, you know, at various record stores. <clears throat> I, of course, I wanted them. I wanted the comps because there's all this other great punk stuff on it. And my friend who's like really into record selling and buying, he's like, no, that's really a compliment. That means that like th they thought your single was worth bootlegging and it makes it more available to, to the public. It gets it out there more. So then it makes the actual single more um, collectible and worth more. And I said, Oh, okay. I guess that's all right. yeah. That that's cool. Not that you that that's not going to play out in generating any income for you or anybody um, because you know for obvious reasons. But anyway, you know, yeah. it, it means that some people like the single, and um, you know. And so you know. apparently, it's been bootlegged as a single too, which which. Well, right, and there and there there'll be a new there'll be a new version of the Vane single coming out in a few months. Right, right? and that's what I was leading to that. That you're involved in that too because you 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 had what you have you didn't have the tapes of it did you no i don't i didn't have the tapes of the veins i just uh, i just did a, a copy off of a very uh, perhaps unplayed copy of before okay yeah that's best i could hope for i i don't know where those tapes are but that's really yeah. cool it's gonna be coming out this summer five yeah. copies and uh i just wanted to show you one thing this is something that I was really proud of. There's this book, it's called The Album Cover Art of Punk Rock. And it's got everything, everybody's in there, right? Just all these cool 45s and, but anyways, can you see, let's see. Oh yeah, down down there is the vein single. Uh, right, pull, lift put it, it up in a little book. bit. Lift it up a bit, up, 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 up. And now uh, move to one side. Uh, stop. Hold it right there. Yeah, there's the vein single in the uh, in the uh, top uh, in a in, a, in a, a a nicely done book of uh, punk record covers. Our right. friend, uh, our, our our band bandmate and uh, our art director Randall Fair made that. And cover. I was just gonna say we got to give Randall Fair credit because. You know, he did a good job on that cover. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, for somebody that was still in high school at the time. <laughs> Dang. Yeah, I mean, they, they liked it enough to put it in that that book. And yeah. I was very and happy. Don Meyer also worked. Uh, we we, we uh, horned in on his uh, design job for the movie theater chain to go in there and, and paste it together <laughs> on his, what, on, on the clock. What did you say? What? Oh, John Meyer who was our other, uh, my other high school buddy who had a job cutting and pasting the uh, movie theater ads every oh, day. I see. Um, so he, he worked in, a, in an art studio and so they had all the stuff we needed to. Uh, oh, that's that's where all that's, yeah, yeah all these cutouts. So Meyer, Randall Fair, shout out to them, the Veins. Yeah. So oh, anyway, yeah. so the Veins, Veins play three shows, I think. And you know, as, this is another, this is another falsehood. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so I was thinking about it, and we played we played the the Iowa, or the Lowers Rec Center. The Fastbacks made their debut, and I think the Veins may have made their debut that night too. And then uh, Psycho Pop, which became Pop Defect eventually when Tom went off to start the human Tom Price. So that was the first one. Um, we did one at a hall at the base of Queen Anne. I forget that hall. And it was with Weenus and um, uh, who else? Oh, The Missing Link. I got to do double duty that night because I got to play drums in The Missing Link. And then there was a band between us and the veins. And then the veins played, so I got to play guitar too. That was a really great night. There wasn't a lot of people there. So, okay. We played a party, Sandra Paleo's house. So when you say we played three gigs, um, do you mean all together? Or well, I think uh, while the band was was still here, also the, oh, okay, also yeah. the Washington <laughs> Hall, Washington Hall Black Flag show. Oh, that's the third one. Okay, so 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 really, okay, that's right. Three hall, hall shows and one party. So okay. I guess that's yeah, okay, I was wrong. You're right. Three official shows. Yeah, yeah. And so as things did back then, I mean, like, you know, the early, late 70s, early 80s in Seattle was really tough. It was really hard to get any um, any traction doing anything. You know, you would you would practice, you you know, you practice as much as you could and try to get out there and, and play your songs and do your things. And, you know, but there was no there was no there was nothing happening. You, you'd have to rent a hall to do a show. And if it was successful, maybe 50 people would show up. And if it was successful, maybe somebody wouldn't, you know, sneak in the kitchen and trash the place as happened a million times. Um, so that means you could do another show at that, at that hall. But, you know, the there was- Cheaters there was, did that once at a show. Oh, absolutely. Um, you guys, the show got closed down. It was a mentor show. And I, I don't know if you guys played on the bill, but it was in that hall in the- on Capitol Hill, the one that has all the different rooms in it. It's sure, sure. the something ballroom. Um, uh, anyways, but you guys were out on the fire escape, just causing hell, causing trouble. And the fire department came and closed the show down. <laughs> so, well, I remember, I remember the uh, the cheaters, Ice Nine, and the mentors. That's what that. it was. Yeah, yeah. That's what sure. that was. I think, I think it, it, if it didn't, it might have, if it got shut down, it was probably after it played because I have some photos of the mentors that night. So I know no, they, they played, played, they played. Yeah, there was. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but so the veins, you know, everybody kind of goes their different ways, sort of, although there was the missing link was another incarnation of many of the same people and uh there was cleavage was another band that was an incarnation of you know there was you and duff and andy john Cotty, there was john blattenbauer there was uh jeff larson and those that core of people had several bands that you know maybe would last if it was a good year, maybe it'd last the most part of a year, but usually it wasn't a good year. And, uh, you know, you might last six months, eight months, which was a long time if you're a teenager or if you're, you know, 20 years old or whatever, you know, that seemed like a long time and you'd get bored that, hey, we're not getting anywhere. We're, we're sitting here practicing, we're doing our best and still all our shows get canceled. People get in fights, the 
police come, you know, not because they're against punk rock is because, you know, it, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't that anti-punk rock police like you hear about in Los Angeles and stuff, right? You know, people would come because somebody smashed a window or broke into a car or somebody did something stupid. That's why the police would come or the windows were open and you get a thousand complaints about loud music. And the, oh, the, band, the bands didn't last, right? <clears throat> they, you know, and so the veins broke up whenever it was sometime in 1980. And a couple other bands formed the Missing Link and Cleavage. And there was another one too, right? Uh, um, another band that I'm forgetting the, the, that started around the same time. <clears throat> was I in it? Say again? Was I in it? No, I, you know, I, I, I even forget who is in, it was either you or Andy would have been, but uh, so anyway, so the, the eighties go on or the, in the year 1980 goes on. Everybody's, you know, flailing around. It gets to be 1981. And, and then what happens? How did the, how did the, uh, the, the living start? Okay, so, well, so, you know, the veins broke up uh, because I think, I think Andy was right about the veins like that. Um, you know, I was taking it maybe too seriously. I wanted us to be more professional and I was putting that, that pressure on Duff and Andy, you know, to like, let's take it to the next level. And I think they just wanted to have fun at that time, at that age. And so they that's were probably like, 16 at the time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. 15, 16, something, 17. And so, uh, you know, they, they did the cleavage thing. And it bugged me at first. I was like, what's this? It's a joke band. Cleavage, what are they doing? You know, and, and, and Johnny's in the band. How did he get in on that? You know, and uh, so that was, they did that for a while. And they even had their house um, in the U District, you know, the Cleveland. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. And so uh, that, that house, I remember Steve Baders came to that house after the Dead Boys played at the Paramount, and he was in there in that party at the after after the show in Cleveland, and he was spitting on the floor being a, a punk, and they didn't like it. And so I don't know who who did it, but they got they started a big. I think Duff. You know, uh oh. Because he was, you know, I think old party guy. But uh, anyways, so so I tell you, I must have been in between bands, or I, I, you know, I was playing. I played in two bands at once. I like to try to play drums in one and guitar in another if I could, and that's what I did when I was doing the rockabilly. I played drums in the four bad dudes and played guitar and sang, and I sang in the other one, both bands, but in the Kitty Cats. So, but but I was missing out on punk too because there was a great punk thing going on, and there was a point where now I don't know when this was if this was before, I think this was before the living, but I I got to do my ultimate hardcore thing, and I did a gig with the Farts because because Tommy was in Sweden and couldn't make it home for this gig opening for DOA, so so I played like I had to learn like twenty songs in ten days or something. And we went out there. It was a dance land USA. It was super hot. It was like, you know, summertime and it was like a heat wave. 
and up, upstairs was over 100 degrees. I think you and Joey Shithead were, excuse me, Joey, yeah, well, I'll call him Shithead. Joey Shithead, we were talking about dance land and how hot it gets, got up there. But anyways, we played with DOA. It was a really great show. And then I don't, I don't, then I had no punk band to play in. And, and I was really, I mean, that was the height of my super fast downstroke, just hardcore bar chords. And um, I wanted to play. And so what I was noticing by 81 was that some of this hardcore stuff was getting, was just, it had no sense of humor. It was just, it was just so serious. And it was, it was fun to go to the shows and fly around and everything, but the actual music and I don't know, some of the people just took it too seriously. So I wanted to do something that was kind of more melodic, more musical, and but punk rock still. And that's when I was thinking, God, maybe I could get Duff to play in a band with me and we could do something like, since he plays drums, and, you know, and he plays guitar and he plays bass, um, maybe we could switch off. And that was really the thing I wanted to do. I wanted, I wanted to have a cool punk rock band that was more of an ode to the old, uh, you know, 70s, more melodic type of punk, anthemic type punk bands, mm -hmm. less, a little less on the hardcore. But anyways, so I, I went to, I remember exactly going over to Cleveland and talking to Duff about this and saying, you know, trying to, trying to talk him into it, really, and saying, you know, Duff, this could be really cool, you know, we could switch off and, you know, I don't know if I already had, um, had uh, John Conti in mind as a singer um, because, you know, we'd worked together in Missing Link. Mm -hmm. But I, something like that, like John came in pretty soon after that. And, and that's how it got started. We just, we, Duff, I think Duff was sort of finishing up cleavage and he wasn't really doing a lot at that time. So that was that little bit of time that we had so we could play in our, our last band together. So that was, that was 81. And as you know, all we did is uh, play a few shows and, and we recorded a couple live shows. And yeah, we did this one, the last show I think we did was at that St. Joe's on Capitol Hill and it was a big fight and these jocks came in and it's a freaking rumble riot thing. And I, I think after that, you know, I'm really not sure God, I got this awful whistle sometimes, like an old man. But anyways, I'm really not sure, <clears throat> you know, what led to me leaving the band, except that maybe I was, my attitude, you know, it could have been my attitude. <laughs> yeah, because I think I remember that St. Joseph Social Hall show, and my band might have been on that bill. I mean, we, you know, it was whatever, I, but some, that was one, like, like somebody snuck in the kitchen and there was just, it was sort of that the end. Like of, it was sort the of the kitchen. end. What's that? It was a big hall, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, it was, it was very big. And I remember seeing John Conti's old band, the uh, 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 laughing Sam play at that Ooh. same, that same place, maybe a year earlier. Um, you know, he had a, he had an, another band that played there. Cause so the St. Joseph's was sort of, you know, it was the hall that you could rent. It was maybe $75 and, Good deal. you know, maybe you had to pay a $75 damage deposit. But I think that day 
somebody, you know, it was maybe the last of the St. Joseph. Somebody maybe broke into the back room and wrecked a bunch of stuff or or somebody stole some food out of their refrigerators or you know something it was just a bad bad scene um, there, were, there were some jocks that came down there looking for trouble i know yeah 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 yeah, uh, yeah you know todd just being just, the badass bass player that he is he was he didn't take any shit he he'd like beat up a couple three guys easy you know at once <laughs> <laughs> and and so so like um so you know maybe you're thinking after that show it's like oh screw this you know it's like and i think everybody was at that point tired of all the fucking fighting and stuff like that that you know like at the shows the you know the hard people wanted people saw started seeing on tv by 1981 that you know there's hardcore that means you go fight and you know you don't even listen to the music you just go there and put your elbows out and start bashing people in the face. It's like, well, that, no, that's like this TV show version of, uh, of going to, you know, we're, everybody's still trying to play good music, but it's kind of like, and you want to play fast music, but it's getting kind of ruined by all these boneheads. And I think everybody sort of mentioned that like right around 1981, you know, getting tired of just this, you know, jock, hardcore, you know, just going out there trying to hurt people in, in the audience. And um, yeah, that, that, uh, that gets really old, you know, people, I mean, I, I was, I was a real, you know, I participated in a lot of that, but I never got into the idea of trying to hurt somebody on purpose or, or trying to screw stuff up. I was of course not around having a good time. You know, always helping a guy up if they needed help. Right, right, right. And, and, and you know? that, that's where it kind of crossed the line. Like, you know, when when people first started playing fast music and everyone would be, you know, just bashing around and and it was it was it was fine. And then something happened where, you know, people with their elbows out and and doing their mosh dance and bashing into people and you know. You know, even like, because there's so much fun you can have as an 18 year old or a 20 year old, you know, pushing people around and stuff if it's all if it's all fun. But, you know, after people start just intentionally, you know, trying to hurt people or, or grabbing people who are not interested in your little punk circle and throwing them in there, you know, it's like, just leave everybody alone, let everybody find their own level of what they want to do. Um, and I think both both Duff and like Andy had mentioned that everybody mentioned that sometime around that time, you know, people getting and it could have been that one particular show that it's like, all right, enough of this. So at some point, you're just like, like you know, this is this is this is kind of getting pushed too far. Maybe is that is that what you're thinking? Because I don't really remember. I was probably there but I do not remember exactly what, what happened and, and what, how everybody left after the night. <laughs> I, know, I know that uh, there was snow that night and a friend of mine who came to the show on the way home, I found him in his crashed car because the roads were icy and he crashed. <laughs> he got all messed up. Wow. What? That... That's, I'll never forget that. That's certainly non good. Let me see if I can find the date of that. Um, Polish Hall, 
St. Joseph's was December 11th, 1981. Yeah, that's 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 when it was, I think. St. Joseph's Hall's Silly Killers, Fastbacks in the Living, December 11th. Um, and that would have that would have made made that would have been about about right. Yeah. And so you're just like, all right, enough of this baloney. What 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 did you do? You 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 know, hard to remember exactly what uh, what you think. You know what what happened, but you're just like, okay, maybe this is not this is not panning out the way it was supposed to. To try to start a, you know, more melodic, more, you know, still kick ass punk rock, but not uh, you know not slam dancing necessarily. Yeah, yeah, it was um. I don't know what what I was thinking, what I was trying to do. You know, I don't. I think that it might have been too all over the place. Just this, the various songs that we had in our set, it might have been a little too all over the place for Duff. I think that Duff wanted something more straightforward, mm-hmm. and and then um, I think I think tension probably between me and Duff. Um, so, but it didn't it didn't really. You know, it's not like we stopped being friends. I just, I didn't see him as much anymore because he was doing the living with, with Greg. They got Greg. And, and then I didn't, you know, I wasn't crazy about the band because it was so different than what we were started off doing. And, but they seemed to have more, they got a lot more momentum going Mm -hmm. and more of a market maybe for that kind of straight ahead, hardcore type punk rock. Right, right, right. But uh, strangely, it was, you know, ex- exactly the opposite direction that you were thinking of going in. But I don't remember there being a huge slam dancing uh, thing, seeing the even the, the 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 second incarnation of the living, you know, it was it was it was the right kind of music to do that. But somehow, maybe just the places that they ended up playing were not quite so uh inviting to the the punk jocks <laughs> i did i did read somebody i think it was on the living 1982 podcast i mean the the group i think somebody posted something about seeing the living at hibble and hides and that it was just magical everybody had a really good time and it, everybody was it was their own personal slam pit but it was like just everybody's having fun nobody was getting hurt so they probably have to you know at the right shows with the right people um you know they probably did get people going Um, yeah 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 and and i you know i was not yet 21 yet so i couldn't go to himmel and hides so funny to think about that that you know my friends bands who are all 18 years old at the time mm-hmm. and they could they could get into play but we couldn't get in to go watch them it's like yeah. oh and i saw that i saw the professionals you know jones and cook's band i yeah. saw them outside of um was that astor park oh sure sure Park down by the cinerama yeah yeah oh, sure astor park they were playing and and i was watching their butts you know because because you could see them from outside on the sidewalk <laughs> right right you can see in the stage from fifth avenue right yep, so you can sort exactly. of see the stage but you could it was from the from the back and it wasn't right. it wasn't even a very good view i remember looking in on some bands and then 
finally I turned 21 so I could actually go to that place because they did end up with a, with a lot of pretty cool bands for sure. I want to tell you something, a funny story about a living show. We did that Rex show and we were underage. So they were really uptight about it and they made us stay. We played, I th think we played with the Moberleys at that yeah, show, yeah. I'm not sure, but I don't know if, I don't, I'm not sure, but anyways, they made us stay outside, uh, you know, while we were waiting to play. And we were underneath this, you know, big sign, billboard sign. And I felt some hit my head and a, a bird shit on my head. And I, I was so pissed. I was like, God damn it. They made us stay out here and I have to be out here and I get shit on by a bird. And then, I, and then people are trying to tell me, Oh, it's good luck, you know. It's good luck. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. good luck to be right. jumped on by a bird. Uh, well, you know, good for you to consider it good luck. <laughs> and another show I want to mention about the living was when I was listening to you and Joey Shithead's conversation. They were talking about the living going up there to Canada, and Joey didn't seem to remember the first time. And the first time, my version or the one that living that I was in went up there and we opened for DOA at a, a smiling Buddha and it was a really good fun show there wasn't a lot of people but um afterwards we went back back to Joey's place and they stole a bunch of beer I don't know if it was a keg or cases they just they just always were able to come up with all this beer and what they the brought it back to the place and we just had a really good time and they were very, very good hosts, you know. To I think I think Americans. Todd talked about that that they, uh -oh. they snuck into a they snuck over the fence at a brewery <laughs> and nabbed nabbed a bunch of beer so they could bring it to the party. <laughs> and, you know, Todd is who's a wonderful cat. You know, and he didn't know. You know, he didn't know what he was getting into. He just goes up to Vancouver to play a play a show, which is pretty exciting unto itself. Especially, you know, being he Todd was probably eighteen, and it was his first band. Ends up in a car with a bunch of, bunch of Canadians, and they go on the rampage trying to trying to snag some uh, some beer for their party. That might have been the, the second time they went up there. Oh, that wasn't in the band, but I don't know. I, you know, I think that they steal beer every every time anybody comes over or something. You know? Yeah, right. Or, or anytime nobody comes over. <laughs> put in your money, put your money together. No, I don't have enough. Or it's too late. Remember in, in Canada, you'd have to buy beer at the uh, at the beer store. Go to the beer store and get some brusques. And right. you know, once they were closed, you couldn't you could get off sales at a bar, but it was the same price as you know buying beer at a bar, which that expensive yeah um so at that show where we opened up for doa in vancouver i don't know what was with my drumsticks if i forgot them or they broke they're all broken or i had to borrow drumsticks and I, so from chuck biscuits i borrowed these sticks and they were like marching band sticks they were like i don't know why they were so thick and i, I mean i guess that's just what he liked so he get that really heavy sound by the time I was done and ready to switch instruments with Duff off the drums, my hands were like 
all blistery and torn up from, from those drumsticks, man. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, you, your adrenaline's flowing and you don't give a damn. No, no, you can, you can, you can for, forget about the the blisters on the on the inside of your hand playing guitar. I mean, it will still hurt, but you know, like then then you end up with blisters on your fingertips, and then your your hand is wrecked. <laughs> Luckily, that didn't happen. But uh, anyways, um, what I wanted to talk about a little bit too was, you know, while there was some really good punk bands in Seattle, um, there was like other scenes too, you know, and nobody's, I don't think you guys have touched on that much, but I know it's supposed to be talking, we're supposed to be talking about punk rock, but I think it's important to point out that Seattle had an amazing scene um, back in the day. Can you see that one? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so that's, there it is, the Seattle Syndrome. And that, that, I just listened to this to kind of get in the mood for our talk. And it's, there's a lot of variety on there. And there's a lot of good stuff. And I mean, I, I forget sometimes that how many good bands are on there and that how many people I knew and played in bands with. Um, you know, like, you got the Refusers on there, the Farts, the Fastbacks, uh, Jim Bass Nights on there. Um, we got the Puds, which is Rob Morgan's band. Um, my band that I was in at the time was an art band, art rock band, um, the Max, you know? And so, so I think sometimes, you know, people forget that there, there, was a, there was a pretty thriving scene if you put it all together. And, and if you wanted to go out and see different bands, there was usually something going on, whether oh, sure. The blackouts or the beakers or you know some of those art bands or or even the rockabilly scene there's a rockabilly song on that on that comp by the party 88 yeah party 88 you know it and uh i i I think at one point i mean we loved the seattle syndrome album you know because it was the only actual record compilation of seattle bands that existed at that point yeah um, and uh, I think at, at one point, like, we even started a Seattle Syndrome album band. <laughs> we're oh, really? really going to learn all the songs on that record and, and play them. And, and uh, you know, we got together and, you know, learned the puds and learned the, the refusers and learned the fart song and learned X-15. And we learned all the songs on that record. And then it never really it really never got past a practice or two for sure oh, but we, we thought about it I mean, we loved all those songs and yeah especially you know it's 1981 you know like we were 20 you guys were like i, I was tw- i was 20 in 81 18 17 yeah. Yeah. you know it's just amazing there was a, a lot of ambition in seattle at that time yeah and bands like all of our like the the rockabilly bands could find shows at clubs but and the blackouts could find shows at clubs and maybe x15 could but yeah, the punk rock the, yeah. the punk rock ones the farts and the refusers and the fastbacks the, right. the uh, we couldn't get proper shows at regular bars i mean there was the Rex. 
and that we could play on one night a week on Wednesday or whatever night it was that they had that they had punk music and they put together great shows yeah, um, yeah. but nobody was 21 yet so you had to wait outside <laughs> so it was your turn to play I mean it's just terrible like and so it's no it's it's not um, that surprising to me that bands would not last very long you know it's like god how much more crap can we put up with to try to play a show and you know like if you're 18 20 year old kid you're just like screw this i want to do something else you know and just it's funny thinking about through these old days because it was very much like the, that you know you you'd try to practice constantly i mean bands practiced we didn't have anything else to do so we practiced all the time and and you know you could play the gorilla room maybe and you could play rex one night a week um and i can or you could get get up have a hall show you know what was that, that other there was some there was some club that was down in pioneer square and i remember seeing the refusers down there and uh it was it was pretty early i don't know if you remember that one or it was not not the gorilla room no not the gorilla room the hibble and hide it was pretty big oh. I don't know. It was it's a pretty big place, as I recall. Right, there, was a, there was a place didn't uh, didn't like Black Flag played another another club, and maybe the Gun Club played whatever whatever that club was. I don't remember because I couldn't get into those clubs. Yeah, and you know you just get you get so pissed off. It's like what Black Flag is playing at a bar in Pioneer Square and we can't go or the Gun Club or all these bands that you really wanted to see. And it's like, well, this is this is stupid. All You know, our older friends could all go. It's like, oh, it was, it was so great, man. <laughs> it's like, shut up. You know, like and some people had fake IDs and some people were bold and just, you know, ran past the door guy or something like that. But if, if you didn't, if you couldn't do that, you just couldn't... Uh, you know, the Ramones played at the Rainbow Tavern in right. the U District. And, you know, we can stand outside and watch them. And that's about it. It's like, wow. I mean, the, the you know, the Rainbow was just a small club. It was, you know, and it, with the Ramones being everyone's favorite band, it's like, wait, how, how does this, you know, why, how, you know. Nowadays, you know, nowadays it seems like kids get fake IDs all the time so easily yeah uh, yeah we never we never occurred to us to nobody ever got fake ids right you just had, had to a, wait and it seemed like seemed like a long wait if, if you had a brother or a sister you know if you had a brother or a sister that was you know roughly your same age you know you could borrow their id or something like that you know but but that was about it you know otherwise the people would look at your id and it's like no you're out keeping the id so you're you know just mega screwed it was it was tough it was tough growing up here chris so um, i was looking at this rag too it's um yeah see that one yeah little back backfire it says backfire yeah, backfire. So you guys are in here. Um, this is from 1983, and the Fastbacks have a nice interview in here. And um, so does Jim Bassnett. 
Yeah. And I, so I read both those earlier today. And it was fun, just the perspective, the, the way you guys interacted and how you conducted your interview. But I was going to, what is really something is on the back is this slick ad. Can you see that? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I remember, I remember that. I remember that ad very well. Uh, oh, 10 minute remember warning. Remember that ad? So uh, that's, that's 10 minute warning. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, right. And they got a full page, you know, ad magazine. So I was thinking there must be, there must have been some backing or somebody has a little bit of money to put in an ad in a nice ad like that. Yeah, the, the, I, I couldn't comment on that because I have no idea, you know, who put that in there or why. Um, is it an ad for something or is it just a picture of 10 minute war? It's, 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 it's a picture of them and it says 10 minute warning in the top corner and in the bottom right hand corner, it says see them live with black flag August 7th at the Eagle's Nest and watch for their new EP. So it was, it was kind of a, you know, two for one, an ad for a gig and then an ad for upcoming EP. But, um, right, right, right. but I, I just, look at these pictures because these guys, you know, Paul's in there and, and I played with Paul in a couple bands, you know, too. And all these, these guitar players, there's a lot of, there was a lot, I gotta say, there was a lot of good guitar players out of the Seattle punk scene. Of course, you being one of them, but I'd like to think a lot of people that you're a good guitar player. Yeah, after no, all no, these no, years, no, you no, think finally that, got good. I'd like to think that that's true. That there were a lot of a lot of cool guitar players in the Seattle uh, in the Seattle music scene back then. Yeah, there were. We had yeah, we had a lot of players, and uh, you know, like a lot of cool punk rock guitar players, Tommy from the Farts, you know, Paul Soldier, um, Duff, uh, myself a little bit, although I didn't play guitar that much. After the living, all I did was play guitar, uh, rockabilly. I don't think I played any, any more punk rock guitar, but, but uh, you and just um, like, did I say Chris Harvey? You know, Chris Flat. Harvey, yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of these guys. And they had their cool names like yeah, slats um, definitely. Uh, slats definitely. You know, I don't know. Led the charge around that time. Yeah, it was. It was. Things happened really fast, and looking back, you know, well, it's hard to believe that I played in so many bands. You know. Now it's hard to get one band together, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's hard to get a band to practice and let alone, you know, we were just motivated. We just, we were fired up to do our thing. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, there again, you know, it's the time where that's all, you, you can put all your energy into it, listening to records, practicing drums, practicing guitar, writing songs, you know, that's all you did if you had a, uh, if you had a job 
you would go to the job every, you know, whatever you had to do. And all you were thinking about is getting done so you could go practice with your band, one of your bands, you know, everybody was totally dedicated and that's all they did is just try to, you know. Yeah, I mean, here's, here's a good example of like how much music meant to me and how much work didn't mean. So the Ross Dress for Less store that opened on Aurora, it was on Aurora at about 130th. That sure. was, I helped open that store. That was the first Ross Dress for Less in, in the whole Northwest. And so I helped open that store and I was in the shooter department, you know, and it was an okay job, wasn't great, but Bumbershoot came along. And this was back when Bumbershoot was amazing, where you could just see so many great bands for next to nothing. And I wanted some time off to see some bands and they wouldn't give me the time off. And I just said, well, I guess I won't be coming back in. I blew off that job just, just because I had to see these bands. I had to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to go down there and, and participate, you know? That's how dedicated, like, I don't, I don't know if I ever had any full-time jobs back then. I think it was always part-time jobs so I could do my music. And, you know, right, right. I was and going every, to college every, too, but, you know, just. Everything was subservient to playing music. And that's how it was for everybody, you know. And, you know, even talking to Duff and, 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 just go going over those times i mean everybody was was dedicated to to playing music in what whatever whatever band it, it was and you know right around 1982 when when you know like because we're go, going over why the living split up and you know how everything started changing around 1982 and people were really getting frustrated and there wasn't a venue to play at there was there was nowhere to go. You'd rent your hall shows, you know, lose your deposit, lose you know, lose money doing hall shows. You could you know play at the at the punk nights at the regular bars, but you know that was that was about it. And you know people really they just wanted the opportunity to make a cool sounding record. They wanted the opportunity to to be like the bands that they liked and the records you know back then nobody had the ultimate album come out that was you know recorded at a proper studio and sounded like a million bucks you know it was so hard all that stuff was just like an unattainable goal i think i mean you would you would probably think the same thing like, yeah, yeah I, want, I wish what a record that I could put on next to one of the other records that I like and and be happy with it and be proud. Yeah, hold up, yeah. I, I wish that back then I would have recorded more um, studio stuff with the various bands I was in. Oh, for sure. To, to have, because I was in so many bands. Now, you know, I, I always say this, but I just like it to be known that, you know, I've been in over 50 bands. And I, and I think about half of those bands I had played in um, in Seattle before I moved to LA in 87. So a good 20 bands or so, 25 bands. And I just wish that I had, you know, taken the time to make sure we went into the studio or found somebody with a, a little portable recording studio or something. Right, 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 right. Because you'd have something to, to show for all this because you put a lot of work in it, do it, and then 
have have so many things fizzle and and it's it's that's you know i was busy doing a lot of different things and you know sometimes i wonder if i just would have concentrated more on one thing maybe something bigger bigger could have come out of it you know but but yeah eventually i had to move on because i just i wanted to be an actor that's i went to school to be an actor too so that's another reason why i did some acting in seattle but you know, you got to go to Hollywood, which is really a good thing to do because of the music thing too. So, but I did, that's what I did eventually to do just how I could deal with it and um, the frustrations of, so by, I guess by 87, when I moved, that was the beginning of sort of the grungy thing was, was that was kind of starting then, huh? 86, 87. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the, 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 you know, the, 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 perhaps the tides were turning a little bit and then, you know, by, 19, by 1988, things were totally going, uh, going in the grunge direction, I yeah, suppose, for sure. Definitely. Um, at least, at least something put Seattle on the map, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, <laughs> if it, if it wasn't you and it wasn't I, then yeah. you know, at least, at, at least, least our city least, is known for something. And we were there, right? Yeah, we, we were there when it all happened. Um, yeah, so I don't know, 82, there was still a lot of stuff kind of going on, at least with me. It's like trying to do stuff and and maybe not playing as much punk rock uh, because, you know, the rockabilly stuff was, like you said, it was easier to play various places. You know, we could play some country and western honky tonks, and we played. You know, we we played the Seafair Clown Day, where the sea, the Seafair Clowns come down and they go to the Muir Amphitheater and parade around, and the kids and we were down there playing, and it was it was great. But uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, everybody, everybody's got a, you know, every, every, there was, everybody was loaded with energy. Yeah. And, you know, it was so easy to get frustrated. It's so easy to get beat down and so easy, you know, for, for something that you're working so hard at and, and you just, you know, over and over the hall would get trashed and everybody yeah, loses you know. all the money they put in or, you know, people would fly off and you know, just... I know i know that black flag show that we played um the pa people found out that it was a punk rock show and they pulled out and so i offered up my pa which you know we had bought to get to make the single mm -hmm. to make the, the vein single mm -hmm. and uh, and I really didn't, you know, I didn't want to move it out of the practice place. I didn't really want to do it. So I, I, I said I'd let him use it, but I wanted some money for it. I wanted to get paid maybe 50 bucks. And maybe I even said 100. I probably didn't, but I, I know I said at least 50 bucks. And oh, they did not like that. Black Flag was pissed. And, and that singer, Ron Reyes, he got so mad, he fucking threw a beer over, over the, um, the, the uh, mixing board. Of my PA when they were playing, so that talk about you know you you work so hard for something and then it gets ruined you know that was that really sucked <laughs> but wow. 
you know, I but I was the jerk for charging money for it. <laughs> right. I suppose if they had the PA that they were going to get, they would have had to pay for that too. I mean, nobody nobody's going to lug a PA system around for no money. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, that was you know that was the one thing that you always had to had to count on. You you brought down. It was usually, you know, like $75 for the haul, $75 damage deposit, and the PA was $75 or $100, bucks, maybe $150. I remember, you know, Conrad Uno, our buddy who was, you know, the Pop Llama uh, Records guy later, he was a, a PA guy. And we would, you know, call him up and say, can you um, bring, you know, can you do sound at this thing? And he'd, he'd come down there. And he was a wonderful cat. Um, and you know, there's just some super funny stories about, you know, Mike stands getting broken or beers flying around, you know, it's like, and, you know, I, the whole, the whole climate of, you know, and, and, and you also think of, you know, these old people that are, they were old at the time that were renting out their halls that we would play at. And, you know, they were probably 60 year old retired people that are, you know, and they, you know, 18 year old kid comes in and says, yeah, we want to rent your hall. Oh, we're having a uh, something, you know, you'd have to lie. You can't say, oh, we're having a loud punk rock show with a bunch of belligerent jerks. You know, we're, we're having doing, a dance. Yeah, we're, we're having a dance. It's That's a dance. what we always say. We're having a dance. So it's like, well, how many people do you think? Well, there might be 20 or 30 people show up. So, okay, well, $75, here's the damage deposit. And, you know, half the time everything would go right and you'd, you know, spend the time cleaning up and or half the time somebody would, you know, I remember the crepe paper, the wheels of stuff, you'd put up some decorations and someone would tear it down and get beer on it and the ink would soak Run. out into the dance floor. The, the no, no. wood dance floor. It's like, this floor is ruined. It's gonna be, you know, $500 to fix it. You owe us 500. I was like, you're not getting $500 out of us. Nobody, you know, possibly could do it. If you want us to come and sand the floor, we'll do that. <laughs> like, no, get out of here. You know, so <laughs> the next time you wanted to play at that hall, someone else would have to go in there. It's like, oh, we're having a dance. And uh, I think 20 people are showing up. I mean, it was just the same thing. I look at this list of shows of, you know, the Polish Hall, St. Joseph's Hall, the Serbian Hall, all these, uh, the UCT Hall, Dance Land USA, the Gorilla Room, all these places that we we played at, you know, in those those old days, and and just it's just amazing to think of of how um, how resourceful we were, you know and fearless and resourceful it's like well we have bands we are gonna play you know nobody will have us so we'll have to put on our own things and yeah like play at somebody's just in somebody's garage you know at a party or something oh yeah yeah for sure it's like well we you know there's nothing to do this weekend well we my parents are gone we can play in the garage like we're there you yeah. know three bands and a keg's all you need Seriously. <laughs> yeah well, and, you know, I totally miss those, uh, totally miss those days of being resourceful and uh, out of our minds. You know, I, I got to say one thing that I got to put on the record. It has nothing to do with this, but Kim Warnick was the living's first bass player. <laughs> I just oh, had yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and we're, you know, we we know that at least one show she does a show. That's right. And I had for I'd forgotten. I mean, because when Todd came in, the guy was such a phenomenon that you just kind of forget Todd. You know, right, right, right. It was. It so was I a, forgot that we had that Kim was a new beginning with us, and she helped us out. Get us. She got us started. But uh, but that was at an art gallery with. Uh, yay, right, I believe that, that sounds right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so she was playing in the fastbacks too, then, right? Yeah, that would have been August, August '81, I think, or you know, or summertime '1980. Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. You you didn't mind her playing in another band? I'll go do whatever you want. You know, it's like whatever. I you know I probably was in another band at that time too. I don't remember exactly, but. No, yeah. everybody should do as much as they can. And, you know, it, it was never, it doesn't ever seem like there was a, a problem. Oh, we need to choose between this band's show and this other band's show. If you had a show, that was great. And all your other bandmates would go to it too, you know, because if you had a show, it was something fun for you to do, but it was also something fun for your friends to do too. And now sure. I wasn't in IE and I wasn't in the living, but I was happy that you get a show because it's like, okay, well, this Saturday night, then there's something to do is you can go to the show and see your friends' bands. It's not quite as much fun as playing, but it's also, you know, really, really great. I think, I think there was a lot of camaraderie in our music scene here. That it was a family. It was a family. Yeah, some of the other music scenes didn't have. Like I think Vancouver, BC. I think a lot of the people were a little bit more, you know, a little bit more competitive there. But there was no prize in Seattle in 1981, 1982. There was nobody was going to get anywhere so anything you could do was celebrated you know there was there was not much jealousy i don't think if i remember correctly not a lot of jealousy if you got a show well we can have three bands we already have three bands uh but next time you guys can play or what you know whatever it was and everybody would go to the show and and have equal amounts of fun <laughs> well I, I tell you i i admit to feeling jealous first time I saw cleave cleavage because I was like there's Duff and Andy you know my guys and there's Johnny Vinyl I played with him and before and you know it's like I felt like oh, I'm missing out I was I was I felt jealous of that. and that's one of the few times I felt jealous back then of, yeah 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 I, I want to be up there <laughs> yeah 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 I you know but then, then it was just a, a matter of a few months before the living started. I know, was another, I know. another combination of that the same uh, the same people. You know, I think I think that weeks and months back then were more like months and years. Like, oh, absolutely. Even though it it seemed, I mean, we look back and it's amazing. We played in so many bands in so short a time and all this stuff. But really, it didn't seem like it was that short a time. It seemed like the right amount of time. Oh, for sure. Of course shows. it was. And you'd get frustrated and you'd, you know, quit your band and do something else, you know, and it's, but it seemed like, well, we gave this as much time as it needed and now let's do something else. You know? Yeah. And you know, then you look back and some of those bands lasted for four months or five months, you know, the zip dads, yeah, the, uh, you know, I like some of the bands that only played a short amount of time, but you know, you packed a lot of excitement into those those few months that the band was going for sure. 
Yeah, Zip Dads. That was Scott's band, Scott Dittman, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was did, no did back then. There was there was no. Oh, I don't think we want to do that show. You know, anytime anybody asked you to do anything, it was like, hell yeah, we're doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, jump on it. Yeah, yeah, because because yeah, you know, you were you 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 needed it. I mean, we need it now too, but. You know, now everybody's got jobs and other things and stuff like that. So it's hard, as you were saying, it's hard to have one band now, whereas back then you could be in two bands or three bands. And it's like, I'm going to be late. I'm going to be an hour Gosh. late for practice. Can we practice at four instead of three? Because I got to finish another band practice and get on the bus and go to the other place. You know, people were just, we was just doing the best we can. Well, one, one thing that I like, that I want to mention was the time that um, we brought Jane County up from, from LA or from New York, whatever, and did that show. I felt that was really great because it was bringing back old style punk rock to Seattle. And I don't know in 88, what was going on locally, if there was much punk rock, um, but that was really great show that I'm glad we were able to pull off. You know, did, did you get to, did you go to that? Oh yeah, we, we played at it. That's why the Fastbacks were on that bill. Yeah, we, 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 we opened the show for sure. Right, so was it just you and the, the Fastbacks and us? It was just the two bands? I think so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were supposed to, um, that was supposed to be videotaped. And I just would have loved to have seen that. I, I, somebody didn't show up with the videotape and so much for that. Oh man. I can't even remember some some of these bills who I played with and who I didn't. Right, right. Oh, of course, it it is. Uh, glad glad you reminded me that you guys were on that bill. <laughs> it was June sixth, nineteen eighty. It was eighty eight, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bit. So that was that was giving people a taste of the old school. Jane County, she was really something, you know, and her songs were really great. And that was it. She had songs. She really, you know, put an effort into writing well-written songs, you know, and uh, that's important, as you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I like a good, well-written song, and I, I also like a good, poorly written song. <laughs> yeah, just just a riff. Just like fucking. I know. I know. Mean. I know what you mean. Like. Yeah. yeah I like course. some of the greatest music, and I like some pretty terrible music too. Is amongst my favorites of all time. Yeah, I like it all too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. I, guess, I don't know. I guess we've we've covered a lot of stuff. Didn't I guess yeah, we covered enough. We, we I'm sure Todd talked about practicing in his basement and how, how that was. It's pretty tight down there. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think there's a photo or two from down in Todd's basement. And uh, I think it was Mike McCready said that you know he grew up in the neighborhood and and you guys let him come down and hang out. For a few practices here and there too. Um, Good. You know. Glad you brought that up because when I moved back to Seattle in eight, 93, I was at some show at the Rock Candy and I was hanging outside in the front talking to Damon Gaden. He was uh, he was the doorman and Mike came up and he said, you know, Chris, back then in the day of the living, we used to give you guys a lot of shit about your Sax Pistols poster on the wall. We, we gave you shit about punk rock, but, but you know what? You guys really knew where it was at. You knew what, you knew what was going on. And I said, and this is like Mike McCready, rock star. And I was like, man, that's cool of you to say, 
because you know we, we like to get that tip of the hat every once in a while you know yeah yeah you, you got to have at least one foot in punk rock if you're going to play if you're going to play music there's lots of great kinds of music but you know you gotta you gotta you gotta have a foot in there yeah i'm always amazed when people don't know anything about it or don't don't like it and just you know it's like I don't know, man. Punk rock changed my life. That's bottom line. Is I was really into music, and I broke my leg skiing my junior year, and I had all this time to just sit and think. And I got "Rocket to Russia" would just come out, and Van Halen's first album had just come out, and I started listening to those two records a lot on the couch, healing up. And I said, "This is what I want to do. I don't. I wanted to play guitar." And, I, and, and, you know, we were trying to play like Al, Al, Al DiMiola and John McLaughlin and a lot of these guitar players. We wanted, me and Garth and a handful of us wanted to play like that. Mm -hmm. I, I realized after um, listening to punk rock and Van Halen that you don't have to be the best guitar player in the world, although Van Halen kind of was. But I realized that, you know, this is something I can do. This is I can put my frustrations, my feelings, all my, everything that I've had in my life, I can put into it. And, and I did, that's, it's a good thing that punk rock came along. How about you? How did you get, how did you get turned on to punk rock? Somehow you had Rocket to Russia by the Ramones and the first Van Halen record. You had both those. You had both those records. I'm pretty, pretty sure your your course will be would be well charted. <laughs> I mean, I was I it wasn't that um, experienced, but when I made that Veins record, listen, I listened to it earlier, and, and it's got Ramones, you know, the rhythm, the all the downstrokes, power chords, and then it's got some wild leads, not nothing like like um, Van Halen. But I was trying to play some intricate cool leads and it's exciting like exciting music yeah yeah i guess i guess they did help me a lot those two yeah yeah yes. well, ramones and van halen are, <laughs> can't go uh, wrong <laughs> you're there you can't <laughs> what about you what what how did you get turned on to punk rock was there somebody older an older person that turned you on to it or and it was in high school. I mean, we had we got the first Ramones record in high school. Yeah. In whatever year that was, 1976. 76, yeah. And so, we didn't we didn't know what punk rock was, but we knew that whatever this record was was something that we hadn't heard before. And you know, we thought it sort of sounded like bubblegum, you know, rock a little bit. Totally. I thought they sounded like the Beach Boys the first time I heard them. Or, or like bubblegum because the were really really simple and, and we didn't know what kind of music it was because nobody told us but we're like we really like this record and then you know we started to hear about the british bands you did know you the, read the magazines the, of course yeah yeah circus and all those but but the, but we didn't know we didn't really know what the ramones were at that point whether we didn't get those magazines or they weren't in the magazines that we had mm -hmm. um but it just wasn't, it wasn't on our radar what the Ramones were. You look at the cover, it's like, this record's weird. This doesn't look like a regular band. The sound of the record doesn't sound like any other band. You know, you, it, know, what, you know what I tell people? If you want to learn how to play the bass or rhythm guitar, 
get the first Ramones album, put it on stereo, put it, put it all to one side and you got the bass, put it all to the other side and you got guitar. You yeah, can yeah. Like play punk rock bass along with the Ramones from that, from that album because they mix it guitar in one. Well, right, and, and, and it's, you know, it's downstroke playing, but it has so much verve to it. It has so much, you know, yeah. which is which get a little of that gets lost every year. You know, yeah. back 1977, the bands that, you know, were inspired by the the Ramones, you know, they they all had a little bit of rock and roll swagger to them. And then, you know, as the years go on, it gets, you know, more mechanical sounding. And, you know, the Ramones are trying to play mechanically, but they couldn't help but put their own uh, style into things. And, you know, um, that, you mentioned the British bands. You know, when I heard Generation X, that band was another band that really was one of the first of maybe four or five bands that changed my life. Absolutely. I, first Generation first X. First Generation X album. Was absolute, so you know, uh, trajectory changer in my book. I mean, it was just everything we wanted to be. And you know, I got to put this in, you know, I know it's, I don't need to be bragging or anything, but, but coming fresh out of the veins and going to London, I spent that month in London, which I didn't talk about here, but this, I'll talk about it some other time. But, um, you know, I, I, I met all these bands that I've been listening to. I, I met the UK subs and I tried to audition for them because they needed a bass player, but they already, I mean, a bass player? Yeah, bass player. And they got it. And I go out to see these bands. Like I was really into, into the neo-mod bands, like um, the Chords, the Lambrettas, Squire, Secret Affair. Remember some of those bands? Well, sure, of course. And Parkas. Yeah, and so they were, I was seeing all these mod bands around town and going to like Oi, Oi shows. I saw the Angelic Upstarts. But then I met Billy Idol in a club and they were auditioning guitar players. And so I actually, you know, I got to audition for them. And that was a that was a, a life-changing experience too, because here I thought I was gonna be in Generation X. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How 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 different life would My be. life would have been. Yeah. Who yeah, yeah. might have killed me? I don't know. <laughs> you know <laughs> who, Billy. Who knows if you know Billy, like he, he got interviewed on um on uh Jimmy Kimmel, and Jimmy Kimmel asked him, so I, I hear you've you've done a million dollars worth of drugs in your lifetime. And Billy gave him a grin and said to him, millions. So, so, so Billy Idols did millions of dollars worth of drugs. I don't know if it lasted that long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know about all that because uh, <laughs> I'm just, just glad, you know, if I, if I thought that I'd wasted that much money it's like wow i'll bet he's thinking god i kind of wish i had those million dollars worth of drug money now but of course you can't uh, you can't change what's already passed yeah and he's he's supposedly clean and sober now good he's he's gonna do a, a residency in vegas or something like that mm -hmm. that's that's cool let them come to you, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can, we can make it to Vegas. 
Well, anyway, I should probably I should probably okay. um, cut cut her out. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Living 1982 podcast. Circle back for weekly episodes and find out about each week's special guests and where to stream the music by following the band's release on Instagram at the Living 1982.